All right, good morning, good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Good? All right. Good to see everybody. Like Kayla said, I love One Service Sundays. Do you? I mean, and I love the, the cheesy name tags that we wear on One Service Sunday, right? Anyone down with the cheesy name tags? All right. There's purpose to the name tags. Some people are rebels. They don't want to wear the name tag up here. They want to wear the name tag here on their arm. So, you know, these rebels, you got to watch out for them. You know, I'm calling John out real quick. So, <laughs> at least you got one on, baby. I thought about wearing mine, but I figured, well, I think you guys know my name. At least you should, right? If I'm responsible to know everyone's name, you should know my name. Hey, it's good to see you. Good to see you this morning. Um, man, it wasn't worship sweet. Amen. We're going to dive into Numbers 21. We're going to continue our series on the life of Moses. On the life of Moses, we've, we've been looking at his life and, and the, un, the unfolding of the events of his, in his life for some time. We're going to be in Numbers chapter 21. I want to encourage you to pull out your Bibles, uh, pull out your message notes, and uh, we're going to look at this together. Numbers chapter 21 Beginning in verse 4, and we're going to look all the way to verse 9. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live." So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. As you know, as we've been walking through uh, the, the books of Exodus and Numbers, we are at the point where the Israelites are literally on the edge of the promised land. Now, what do you think they start doing? They start complaining again, right? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. If I was Moses, I would say, how about you get some new material, right? I mean, they're just constantly complaining, constantly bickering and grumbling and they're, they're toxic and they're negative and they're not satisfied with what God has given them. Look at their complaint. The complaint is pretty much always the same. They're complaining about the manna. Now, if you haven't been in the series, um, as we've been walking through what, what God's been doing for his people, manna was God's provision. It was something that God provided for his people every day. It was like a sweet, um, flaky, resin-type material, tastes like honey. It could be made into breads, pastries, cakes, 
Anybody down with that, right? Anybody like bread, pastries, cake? Okay, all right. Just want to make, make, make sure. Manna was God's miracle for his people. It was a direct, daily, beautiful, wonderful, um, miraculous testimony to God's power and God's commitment to provide for his people. This is what manna was. It was a symbol that, listen, God's like, hey, I'm in your corner. I got your back. I'm covering you. I'm for you, not against you. I'm going to provide for you. I am your God. I am enough. I will supply your needs. But, we, but because of the complaints, it says that God sent fiery serpents. Now, you'll notice that throughout the story, once the people have left Exodus, it seemed like God was so very patient and kind. Now we get to this point where God is, he's a righteous, just God. And, and, and you're going to see these consequences play out for the people. It says that he sends fiery serpents um, that bite the people and many people die. The reaction of the people is this. They the three words that people have a hard time saying, this is what they said. We have sinned. Say it with me. We have sinned. A lot of people, they don't want to admit that. They don't see themselves as a sinner, right? They see themselves maybe as a, a victim, right? Product of their upbringing. It's not my fault, it's my parents' fault. And if it's not the parents' fault, it's the dog's fault, fault right? Or, or it's, it's a relationship or someone did me wrong. You know, this is why I, I turned out the way I am. No, listen, the Bible says that we are all sinners and we're all broken. And I don't think many people really need convincing about that truth. So the people say we, we have sinned. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you and they, they say, they tell Moses, pray to the Lord that, that he take away the serpents from us. And so what does Moses do? He's humble. He's committed to him. He's their spiritual leader. He's the intercessor. He's the servant of the Lord. He steps in. He prays for them. He intercedes. And God tells Moses, this is what God tells Moses. Moses, I want you to fashion. I want you to make a, a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. The Bible says that Moses listened to the voice of God and Moses obeyed and, and he made this bronze serpent and he set it on a pole and those that were being bit by the serpents, they would quickly look up at the pole and they would see this bronze serpent and they would be healed. It was, a, it was a beautiful demonstration of God's saving work, God's miraculous healing in the lives of his people. Here's point number one. I want you to jot this down. In the heart of every person, there is a longing for meaning and significance. You know, people are searching for meaning. They're searching for significance. They're trying to make sense of this world. They're trying to make sense of why they're here. You know, a lot of people, they, they try to find meaning in possessions, you know, buying, hoarding, selling, accumulating, right? It, it, they, they, they feed that, that hole in their heart, really, that only God can fill. 
They try to find meaning in, in places. That's why people are, they escape. They want to escape like their world and they, they want to travel. Nothing wrong with traveling, but there's this, this all-consuming, burning desire in a lot of people where it's like they're just chasing. They're chasing destinations. They're, they're chasing vacations. They're, they're chasing the next thrill. A lot of people try to find meaning in people. They they. They try to find ultimate meaning in their relationships. Someone has said it this way. A lot of Americans are living for one of three things. Sex, salary, status. It's true. One of the things that's left out of there, I guess you could throw it in there, and it starts with the letter S, is sports. I mean, really, America is about sex and sports. It really is. I mean, you, you, you can't barely watch a TV show without having some sort of inappropriate, you know, sexual encounter between two people that are not married. You know, and our culture is consumed with sports. It's crazy. And I, I like sports, but man, come on, you know. At some point, there's more to life than sports, right? I am looking forward to what sports is going to be like in heaven, though. <laughs> I really am, you know. I really am. I can't wait to throw that 50-yard throw, you know. Okay. Maybe you're a golfer, hole in one. All right. A lot of people are, they try to discover, like they're trying to discover who they are, their identity. But for many people, their identity is connected to the physical world. So what's inside this physical world is what they're going to connect their identity to. And people are chasing the temporary. They're chasing what's momentary and fleeting. Here's the reality. You were made for something more. You were made for something more than the physical world, more than what you could see with your eyes. You were made for a God who created you, who knows you, who knows everything about you, and in spite of your blemishes, in spite of your sin, in spite of your imperfections, in spite of your hangups, you are still loved by this God. He created you. You have worth, you have meaning, you have purpose. When you look at the cosmos and the galaxies, there's design, there's order, there's beauty, it's breathtaking. We are so tiny in the grand scheme of things, but yet in the midst of it all, surely there's got to be purpose. I mean, we weren't just, you know, just, we're not just like some random accident. We're just here by chance. No, we are here by purpose. The reality is you were made for something more. You were made by a creator, by a God who built you, who created you, who knows you. If, if I said, kind of a silly illustration, but if I said, hey, you know, um, um, this um, iPhone, we got any um, non-iPhone people in the room? All right. The kingdom belongs to those who are iPhone lovers, right? No. <laughs> I can't stand Android people. You try to get them on a group text, and it's like, oh, my goodness, this is crazy. I think my wife said the other day, it's like you're, you're stuck with them, right? You can't drop them. You can't get them off the group text. They're permanently there, right? I was sitting there, and she was like, she's like, you know, these Android people, you know, it's like, it's like marrying a non-believer. You're stuck with them. And I was sitting there in the truck next to her, and I thought, that's an illustration. I'm using that. So Android lovers, you are unequally yoked. 
You could give that whole joke credit to my wife. She's the funny one in our household. She really is the funny one. I, 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 I try to be the funny one, but she's the funny one. So what was I saying? Up to iPhone users, down to Android users. So here's the illustration. If I said someone just, you know, this didn't create itself. I mean, it just, yeah, it kind of created itself, right? You know, the process, the system, the, the chip, and the design, the beauty, how it perfectly fits in your hand. I mean, it's got your calendar, it's got your email, your text messages. That's all chance. You would say, oh, come on, that's a bunch of hogwash. But then we look at the creation, the universe, and we say, oh, it's chance. It doesn't, it doesn't add up, right? So people are chasing they're chasing temporary, fleeting things. God made us so that he can know us, so that we can know him. Our longing for transcendence can only be satisfied in this creator. There is this deep-seated longing in all of our souls that, that can only be satisfied when we encounter this God. When we encounter his son, whom he sent from heaven, and his name is Jesus Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, one of the wisest men, Solomon, he was a king. He wrote like 3,000 proverbs. Uh, he wrote um, so, many, so many psalms. He wrote, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I want you to notice that phrase. God has put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into your heart. What does it mean? That means that people are thinking about spiritual things. People are curious about spiritual things because, you're, because they're spiritual beings. People ponder death. They really do. Now just, whatever you do, don't bring it up at the Thanksgiving dinner table, right? Because that changes everything, right? You don't want to talk about death or politics at Thanksgiving, all right? But people ponder death. They think about the afterlife. They think, they're curious about, is there eternal life? Is there life beyond the grave? When I'm, when I'm placed six feet under in the ground, will I live again? Deep down inside, people have spiritual questions. Why am I here? What's the meaning to life? What is my purpose? Where do I find ultimate significance? Is there a God? Has he revealed himself? Can I know him? And how can I know him? Because if, he, if, if God exists and he has revealed himself, then surely he's benevolent enough to allow us to come to know him, to, to know him, to be in a relationship with him. I love what Augustine said. He said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Nothing in this world will satisfy you. Now, What's happening in Numbers 21? Everything that I just said in point one is going to be connected to what I'm getting ready to say. So it's kind of a, an intro to the passage in point one. So what's happening in Numbers 21? Well, we gotta rewind, and we gotta go back to the beginning, back to Genesis three, the Garden of Eden, paradise, right? Perfect utopia, paradise was perfect. Adam and Eve created by God. I mean, Adam was, was, woman was made out of man, given a man. God 
you know, perform this one flesh union, marriage. It was, marriage was God's idea. He invented it. He gave Adam a partner, a companion. Beautiful story. Everything is perfect. God says, listen, you have complete freedom, but there's only one rule. There's only one thing that you cannot do. And in the midst of the freedom, he says, you cannot eat from the tree. Now, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Now the serpent, circle the word serpent, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Genesis 3, serpent representing Satan, is on the scene, causes Eve to doubt and distrust God. Here's what the serpent says. He causes Eve to doubt God. Did God actually say? Like he, he's putting doubt in our mind. This is what the enemy does. He puts doubt in our mind, right? He causes us to, well, well maybe God didn't say that that was a sin. Maybe I can engage in that. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Then he causes her to distrust God. He goes on and he says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the message that the serpent is giving Eve from the very beginning. God is holding out on you. God's holding out on you. Right? God is not being fair with you. God is not being good enough for you. And so what does Eve do? She takes the fruit, right, this volitional choice. She takes it, she eats it, and then what does she do? She gives it to her husband. And, and Adam, being like a passive husband in the moment, joins in, right? Adam should have in that moment said, no, we can't do this. The Bible says, then the eyes of them were opened. They knew they were naked, right? So sin brings shame, um, they sewed fig leaves together. Made, they made themselves loincloths. So Eve was unwilling to trust God. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, the enemy, tempts Eve, seduces her, causes her to give in, and she does give in to the temptation, and the serpent's venom passes into her heart and her soul into Adam's heart, into Adam's soul. Then, I want you to think about this. At this very moment, we know that their sin, their rebellion against God, causes them to be banished from God. They are then banished out of the garden, and all of the Old Testament is God pursuing humanity. 
God pursuing his people, God pursuing sinners. It's a story of redemption and second chances. So when you, when you hear someone say, well, the God of the old is not the God of the new, that's baloney, right? The God of the old is the same God as the God of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you see his hesed. You see his loving kindness. He's pursuing people for the sake of redeeming people. He's not giving up on his people. But, but in the garden, something happens. Something um, that will forever mark humanity. This all-consuming, unquenchable discontent and thirst begins. Here's what I'm saying. In the garden, everything was perfect. Because of the sin, paradise was lost. Paradise was not good enough. It wasn't good enough for Adam and Eve. That's why they, they, they were tempted and they ate from the tree. They bought the lies of the enemy. And this has been the problem since the beginning. The Bible is very, very clear. Because Adam sinned, we are born into sin. No one is born with a blank slate. We're guilty. We're not innocent. Adam represents us. Therefore, we are fallen. We are sinful. We're separated from God. But here's another thing. This is something that I don't think we really think about. We don't really talk about. Is this all-consuming, unquenchable discontent and thirst begins in our lives. Nothing ultimately satisfies us in our lives. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that we've all done it? We've all chased things, thinking if I chase that, if I get that, that will make me more happy. And it doesn't. It actually doesn't. It doesn't make you more happy. This is why you see, you know, celebrities and sport athletes and uh, movie entertainers, these people that have all the money in the world. And, and so many of them reach a point of total desperation. And they take their life. Why? Because they're ultimately not satisfied. Money can't satisfy you. Oh, it can give you a lot of thrills. It can give you a lot of happy moments. But it doesn't give you something that only God can give you. And that is joy. Happiness is, it comes and goes like waves, like a roller coaster. Joy is something that is steady. It's constant. It, it stays with you. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's cultivated by God in your life. So in the midst of trouble, suffering, pain, tragedy, you can have joy in the Lord because it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's God's work in your life. So happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is based on a relationship that we have with the Lord. So the gospel, the good news, makes it possible for us to know this God and for this unquenchable, all-consuming, raging thirst in our lives to be finally quenched by him. So instead of chasing your whole life, you encounter Christ and you see him for who he is. You see him as your savior, the one who paid the payment for you, the one who died a death for you that you could not die, the one who lived a life that you could never live. It was a perfect, sinless life for you. He took upon your sin, and he made atonement for it. Like, he, he paid for that sin in his body for you so that 
by his death, burial, resurrection, you can be right with God. How? By turning from your sin, by placing your faith in him, by trusting him, accepting him as treasure. The, the only one that can ultimately quench your thirst. The only one that can actually give you satisfaction. The only one that can actually carry you through life. And then when you die, carry you home for eternity. The result of the fall was this infinite discontent, this infinite dissatisfaction. So I think there's a, there's a correlation between Numbers 21 and Genesis 3, and, and you see it. Serpent in Genesis 3, fiery serpents in Numbers 21. People are dying in Numbers 21. They're being bit, they're dying. Genesis 3, temptation, serpent. He lures them, they bite of the apple, eventually leads to death. So what's happening in Numbers 21, they're being bit, has already happened in Genesis 3 in their soul. The Garden of Eden, paradise was lost. They were banished. Adam represents us. Therefore, we are born in Adam. We are born without, without hope, separated from this God, thirsty, trying to find the things of this physical world to satisfy our, 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 our thirst, but nothing will take care of it. And if you don't deal with the thirst in the right way, spiritually with God, you will never find your identity. Here's point number two. The only remedy for our sin is found in Jesus. The only remedy, the only solution to our sin is Jesus. Fast forward to John chapter 3. Jesus has this conversation with a man by the name of, by the name of Nicodemus. He was a religious man. Um, and, and tucked away in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is the most famous verse in all the Bible. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. John 3.16, most well-known, loved verses in the entire Bible. Martin Luther the great reformer, he said, John 3.16 is the gospel in miniature. I love that. It is the gospel in miniature. It is a single verse that shows the greatness of God's love for us. And, and most of us, we, we gloss over it too quickly, but I just want you to make that personal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. That's you. That's me. He loved the cosmos, the people in this world, so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Now fast forward, and let's, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus, he doesn't make a big splash onto the page of scripture. He's only mentioned by name a few times. Virtually nothing is known about this man. One thing we do know is that he was a high-ranking Pharisee. So he was a ruler of the Jews. He was also a member of a strict sect of Judaism called Pharisees. Now, during Jesus' day, there were 6,000 Pharisees. They prided themselves on keeping the law, obeying a, a plethora of oral traditions that were passed down alongside the law of God. So you had these oral laws, and you had the, the, law, the law of God, the Mosaic law, and, and uh, the Pharisees were like, we need to adhere to both. They were religious, but these religious people didn't know God. 
Interesting, huh? It's interesting how religious people sometimes don't know Jesus. They act like they know Jesus, but they really don't. These were the Pharisees. I mean, externally, they looked great. I mean, they placed so much emphasis on works righteousness. It was about the outward, the external appearance, not the heart, not genuine love for God. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus recognizes that Jesus has come from God, but he fails to recognize that Jesus was God. Then in the conversation, Jesus drops a bombshell. Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That phrase, born again, means to be born from above. Nicodemus was kind of confused, right? But the word born again means to be born from above. God, it's God's doing. It's God's work. It's God's miracle. God imparts spiritual life to us. He transforms us into a new person once we come to faith in him. Jesus' statement about being born again sent Nicodemus into a tailspin. And Nicodemus had no pharisaical theological training or categories to understand this born-again concept. So Jesus goes to explain that a person must be born physically then spiritually in order to see the kingdom of God. Now, at this point, they have a conversation. Nicodemus is confused. How can I be born again from my mom? He's so confused. He, he's on the physical train. Jesus is on the spiritual train. Now, I want you to see where the converse, conversation goes. Jesus says in John 3, 14 and 15, he tells Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you have to understand for Nicodemus, I mean, I mean, for the Jews, serpent, the serpent in Israel represented evil, Genesis 3. If you go to Leviticus 11, serpents were unclean animals. So theologically, in Nicodemus's mind, this made no sense at all. So here you have, from Numbers 21, Fast forward, right? Fast forward a few centuries. Here you are, Jesus having a conversation with Nicodemus at nighttime. He's religious. He's curious about Christ. And Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, by the way, um, that serpent that was in the wilderness, what that was, what that represented is what I am, is what I'm getting ready to do. And Jesus was making the point, just like the bronze serpent was lifted up, and if people looked on the, draw, on the bronze serpent, those who were bitten would be healed. I'm, I'm going to be lifted up. And when I'm lifted up, all those who have been bitten by the enemy, Genesis 3, by the serpent, we are born into sin. Our DNA stained by sin. Like we have broken the word and the will of God. We are um, completely in need of God's mercy, God's grace. And Jesus says, listen, if I be lifted up and people look upon me, they'll be spiritually healed. A lot of people in our culture, they're looking within. It's like this Star Wars Jedi look within, you know, the force within, you know, you can do it, you, you know, pull up your bootstraps, you know, you, you can make it to heaven. Listen, if you look within, 
here's what you're going to find, a wretched sinner. But when you look up and you see the glory of Christ who came from heaven, he was the God-man. He wrapped himself in flesh. And he performed miracle after miracle demonstrating that he was indeed the Son of God. And people believed and they followed him. And he was crucified and three days later he rose again from the grave. He conquered the grave. He conquered sin. He conquered shame and condemnation. He conquered all of that so that we can, we can be right, made, made right with him. And so it's not about you looking within. It's about you looking up. It's not about you looking at other people. You know, a lot of people, you know, they've kind of grown up with this like family theology. Well, you know, my parents, they love God. And, you know, because my parents love God and they walk with God, I'm not really walking with God. But you know what? Um, you know, I'm, I'm riding the coattails, right? I'm looking at them. I'm trusting in their relationship. And you know what? The buddy system, right? They're going to get me to heaven. The buddy system doesn't work in heaven. There's no buddy system. There's no hand-holding at the great white throne judgment. You will stand before God, and the Bible says in the book of Revelation that the books will be opened. And what are those books? No man knows. One book could be all the words you ever spoke. One book could be all the, the times in your life when you heard the gospel, but you rejected the truth of the gospel. One book could be all your deeds. I think, I think the, the, the emphasis is that the books, plural, will be opened and you will be accountable before God. You will stand before God and you will be judged. See, on that day, every one of us will stand before God. There's two judgments. The great white throne judgment, which is reserved for unbelievers, and then the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, reserved for those who are believers. If you're a Christ follower, you have no need to fear. No need to fear because you're in Christ. When you die, you stand before Jesus. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Right? Death is gained. The moment you take your final breath, you are in paradise. Paradise regained, which was lost in the garden, but regained because of Christ. And you will stand before Christ and he will lavish out rewards and, he will, and you'll walk into the kingdom. But if you're not a believer, you'll stand before God accountable for your life, accountable for your words and your deeds and your opportunities that you were given to follow Christ and you chose not to. When I think about the garden, Adam and Christ, it reminds me, it reminds me of um, of a verse in Corinthians, I'm not gonna, I, I, didn't, I didn't put it on your note sheet, but it's at 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. It says, For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Because of Adam, we're gonna die, but because of Christ, we can be made alive. Amen? I want you to think about that. Because Adam sinned, he brought the nature of sin and death into the human race. So we're not born morally neutral, right? Adam rebelled against God. Jesus rescued us back to God. Adam brought sin. Jesus offers forgiveness. Adam brought death. Jesus conquered the grave. Adam's sin was great. 
Jesus' death and resurrection was greater. Adam brought alienation. Jesus brings reconciliation. And so when you're born, you're born in Adam. You're born into this sinful human race. But you can be born again from above when you encounter Christ and you see him as the greatest treasure of the world. The one who died for you. The one who bled for you. The one who reconciled you back to God the Father. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? The remedy for our sin is Jesus. Here's here's the gospel story. I want you to think about this for a moment. What's the reality of the good news? God came to earth as a baby. God came into our world as a baby. He could have come as a political, as like a warrior king. You know, he could have caused like a more pomp and, you know, um, more of a grand entrance. God chose two teenage peasant parents to welcome the God of the universe into the world as a baby. The rescue, Jesus came to rescue us from our sins. The remedy, through his blood-stained cross, because he died in our place, because his offer of salvation is free, we can be set free. Reconciliation, he brought us back and he restores a broken relationship that we lost in the garden. Here's point number three. Only the grace of Jesus can forgive us of our sins. Ephesians, Ephesians 2.8.9 talks about, this is probably one of, uh, one of the greatest verses in the New Testament that talks about this grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your undoing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know what? The gospel never gets old. When you, when you think about Christ, when you think about what he's done for you, it should move you every time. Paul's telling the church at Ephesus, listen, God's grace, it means unmerited. It's unearned. It's undeserving. It has to be something that is, it is received, not achieved. You don't get grace. Grace gets you. You don't get it. You don't pursue it. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. It's not what you can do. No, grace gets you. God pursues you with his grace. God doesn't give paychecks. A paycheck is what, you know what? I worked X amount of hours, and I should get paid for X amount of hours. And then the IRS takes taxes out, right? But God doesn't give paychecks. God gives grace. He doesn't give what you think you deserve. He gives you what you don't deserve, and that's Jesus. We've made a mess of our lives. This is why we need grace. This is why we need God's grace. This is why we need mounds of God's grace because we are so in need and desperately in need of a Savior. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith is trust and dependence to receive what grace offers. The Bible is very clear. We contribute nothing. This is why it says, this is not your undoing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We contribute nothing, zilcho. Our salvation, our forgiveness of our sins is a gift, and we receive this gift from God. 
The gift of Jesus, we receive it by faith. You know, forgiveness is not a matter of works. Forgiveness is a matter of grace. I want you to think about for a moment all that we've looked at today. There's a longing in your heart for meaning, significance, and this world can't satisfy it. It started in the Garden of Eden, this insatiable, unquenchable desire, all-consuming rage to find satisfaction. And that's been lost. That is, that is, that's gone. Everything that, everything that was perfect and right, we, we've completely lost it. But because of Jesus and Christ's coming and living the life he did and dying the death he did, Jesus regained what Adam lost. And paradise is now in effect because of Christ. And so as believers, how can we experience this life that we were created for, the the real life? How do we find our true identity? You have to find it in Christ. You can't find it in the things of the world. You have to find it in Jesus. Jesus offers you something that the world can never give you. He can give you hope. He can give you purpose, meaning, and he can forgive all your sins. The mess that you've made in your life, he can give you a redo. Start over. Fresh start. And he can change you from the inside out. But you have to come to a point in your life, are you going to look up? It's just looking up. Oh, it seems so simple. But a lot of people, they're looking to other people. They're looking within. They're trying to, you know, find their own self-righteousness. They're, you know, they're, they're trying to do it themselves. Listen, Jesus is like the bronze serpent. He was lifted high. He was lifted up. And if you look upon Christ and you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, you will live. Let's pray.